Thank you for checking out our podcast here at Eastern Assembly of God Church in Baltimore, Maryland. If you'd like more information about our church, you can find us at www.easternassembly.org. Good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you, and at my advanced age, it's good to be seen, especially this year. Uh, But whenever I'm at Eastern, I always feel like this is my second home. You know, there's so many people who've been part of this church who have been part of my life, throughout my life, and uh, thankfully, a few of the ones who actually changed my diapers at Trinity have now gone on to heaven. I don't want to say that was a long time ago, but President Lincoln had just been inaugurated. (laughs) One of the first sermons I ever preached was over in the old church in what used to be called a CA rally, uh, Christ Ambassadors, which was interesting because most of us were real hoodlums. I think it was more of a faith statement. But I can remember being asked to preach in this youth rally on a Monday night all those years ago, and I wasn't afraid of the devil. I wasn't, I was, just, I was young and stupid. I wasn't really afraid of anything. I was afraid of Sister Rajwana. <laughs> and I just knew that if I said something wrong, she would give me the look. Some of you, I can tell, remember the look. But one of the real highlights of my young ministry was she came to me after the service and told me what a great job I did. And then until the end of her life, she always remembered the three points of that very mediocre sermon. So, you know, it's just interesting the way God uses people to affirm gifts in each other. So I just have, you know, such a deep sense of appreciation for an ongoing relationship with this church in, in this season of my life. And, of course, the, the years now that Pastor Ed and I have been friends, Pastor Dale Everett, whom you all know very well, uh, t- t- talked to me about a, a great healing crusade he had here in Eastern. And he said, you know, I, I really would like to bring the pastor of that church with us to Kenya uh, it only took Dale a day to say that, and he brought Pastor Ed and a team, and I, I tell you, I, I watched Pastor Ed get down in the dirt and the grime of those outdoor crusades. He would always be one of the first ones on the field, one of the last ones to get on the bus, and the, and the joy and the enthusiasm that he brought to the work of the Lord, and I, I could think of no person who was better to carry forward the work of this church you know, into the next season than he was. And now here we are talking about bridges to the future. Now, for some of us, that means we are actually going to plant trees we're not going to sit under. But there is a generation in Dundalk and in Sparrows Point, Canton, Highland Town, these surrounding communities, they have never been more ready to get saved than they are right now. I I believe the prodigal has never been more ready to come home than he is right now. See, something we know about people, when they don't change until the pain of staying the same exceeds the pain of change. 
And this is one of the most painful, difficult seasons in the life of our nation in the last hundred years. And if you're 18 years old, 20 years old, 28 years old, maybe you already lost your job. Maybe you lost your car. Maybe you lost your house. The future, it looks kind of grim for a whole generation of kids. But they're not that interested in church because they already have enough problems. They don't need religion. How many of you know Jesus did not die to give the world religion? He said, I came that you'd have life and that more abundantly. He didn't say, I came that you'd have religion and more abundantly. But getting them to cross the bridge, it has to feel like it's safe. It has to feel like it's home. It has to seem like it's welcoming. Uh, Brother Joe, I so appreciated your words a few moments ago when you talked about being in a place where nobody cared about the color of your skin. And, of course, you know, as a Highland Town kid, I can say this. I found out this last weekend from a, a cousin of mine that I've always talked about the two members of our family who got three hots and a cot from the state of Maryland. I found out there were a couple of more just this last week. I have so much to be proud of. But no matter how long your rap sheet is, no matter what kind of mess your life is, one thing I know about Eastern, looking back over the now 60 years I have known this church, if your life is a mess, you are in the right place. If you don't think you deserve the blessings of God, let me tell you what. God doesn't bless you because you deserve it. He blesses you because you need it. And this whole place is filled with people whose lives were a mess when they walked through these doors. In this place, you're going to be accepted. You're going to be loved. You're going to be forgiven. You're going to be nursed to health. That's the real bridge to the future, folks. The stuff we did on the envelope, it's really good. Although I have to tell you, I really miss the old wood pews. They're just so great on your back and on your sciatica. If you sit on wood pews long enough, you need a healing meeting. <laughs> but to be in this place that is so warm, so inviting, is just a joy. And so, you know, Bridge to the Future, it really wasn't about new chairs. It wasn't about paint jobs. That's all just working on the envelope. You know what it really was about? It's about preparing ourselves to make a place for the Holy Spirit in our community. And that's what's really exciting about this. And Pastor Ed, thank you, Rachel, so much for welcoming me back into this house. Bless you. Been a great year, hasn't it? Baltimore hasn't had this good a year since the greatest team in the history of baseball got beaten five of, in four out of five games by the amazing Mets. We started the year, if you can remember back this long, the U.S. and Iran came to the brink of war. Our own political system doesn't seem to be working very well. 
I don't know if you've noticed Congress lately. They give a bad name to a, to a barroom brawl. Our economy was doing well till COVID, and we found out how fast the house can come tumbling in. And no matter how well you thought you were doing, you could lose your job, your house, your future. This corona pandemic has generated a level of fear and panic in this country we have not seen since the Great Depression and maybe since the Great Flu epidemic after World War I. People are disoriented, they're fearful, they're depressed, and they want to know. They need to know, does God have anything to say? If there is a God, is he there? Is he silent? Does he care? Will he speak? Or are we just left to muddle through the best we can? Well, the book of Revelation is treated like a road map to the end times. Never more so in times like it's when I was a kid growing up at a Pentecostal church. Here's what you knew about a Sunday night service in a Pentecostal church. You were going to hear a sermon on the second coming. And it was going to start like this. Jesus is coming. And nobody's ready. Two will be sleeping in the bed. You're both going to get left. Two will be working in the will. Neither one of you are going to make it. And then we would sing, I surrender all. You know, it was a great era to grow up in with the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Cold War. It seemed like the book of Revelation was at the very top of the New York Times bestsellers list. And I don't doubt for a minute that the last book of the Bible is about last things. But it might be surprising to you to see how the Apostle John started that letter. Revelation 1.1, he said the revelation, that is the unveiling, or the unmasking. By the way, some of you look so good today. <laughs> Pastor, I've got an idea for another revenue generator for the church. Some of us could go into the bank robber business. But the book of Revelation begins with that one word, the unveiling, the unmasking of Jesus Christ. That's the theme of the book. All the other characters, all the angels, the beast, the false prophet, they're supporting players. He is the lead. John tells us he. Everybody say he. He, he is alpha and omega. He is beginning and ending. He is the center and the circumference. In short, he is the star. Well, that's an important word in troubled times. Nations rise and fall. Leaders come and go. But he remains. When this book was written, the Roman emperors controlled most of the known world for hundreds of years. And they wielded absolute power in that arena the emperor's thumb up meant the gladiator lived. The emperor's thumb down meant the gladiator died. Absolute power. But today, I doubt most of us could name more than a couple of those emperors. But Jesus remains. 
And that's the theme of Revelation. He shall reign. I want you to say that with me. He shall reign. Now, that doesn't mean he'll almost reign. You know, we have a lot of churches today preaching almost gospel of a God who will almost heal you, almost save you, almost deliver you. But this is not an almost gospel. He's not an almost king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he shall reign. Say it with me again. He shall reign. Now look who he addressed it to. Revelation 1-4, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. That is seven local congregations in seven cities. Well, these churches weren't filled with the rich and famous. In fact, a third, sometimes even two-thirds of the church members were slaves. They didn't know anything, not even their own name. Ninety percent of them couldn't read. And the churches were small. None of them had, a, had an auditorium like this. Most of them met in houses. They seldom saw more than 50 believers together at one time. So the risk of sounding sacrilegious, i got to tell you, if this is the last and most important message of the Bible, it kind of seems like a waste. Well, wouldn't you want to hold this for the Roman Senate? Or maybe for the philosophers of Athens? Or maybe hold it back to a time like this? When the world is so desperate and there's so much confusion and there's so much uproar. And yet, these seven words from the Holy Spirit were given to seven little groups of Jesus' followers who were barely hanging on. So why would God send one of the most powerful messages in history to people who weren't important? To people who were poor and we're always going to be poor. Who were slaves and their children were going to be slaves. Well, I think the father wanted his people to understand a few things. First and foremost, God gave his message to particular people in particular places at a particular time. If you don't grab anything else out of this message this morning, get that part. The rest is details. I want to say it again. You might want to write it down. God gave his message to particular people in particular places at a particular time. So the message was not broadcast. It was narrowcast. It was not shotgunned. It wasn't general. It was sharp and as targeted as a laser. And take a look at the messages to each church. Each message is individual. Each message is calibrated to that group of people in that particular place at that particular moment in time. Words to particular people. That's what God does in times of crisis. We were in Ukraine in 2004 when they had their first revolution. Of course... Soviet Union fell in November of 1989. The windows of heaven opened in that part of the world. There were only a couple hundred thousand believers in Ukraine when that occurred. Within a decade, there were more than three and a half million. Kiev, there were six churches in 89. There were 300 in 1999. The mayor of Kiev saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. The prime minister saved. Remember the lady with the blonde hair and the braids? Saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. Where'd you think she got that attitude? 
When we started our school, we had four members of the parliament in our first class. It was amazing what God was doing. And they faced a pivotal election in 2004. We didn't know it was going to be pivotal, but a year and a half ahead of time, the Lord had given us a word. We had the leadership of every Pentecostal charismatic fellowship together in a room. And so what is God saying to us? And it felt like God wanted us to call the nation together, call the pastors and the leaders together to hear the word of the Lord. We never imagined that 5,000 of them would come. We didn't spend any money on advertising. We never spend money on advertising. We really don't. We just put the word out through the leaders, through that wonderful underground network that had existed in 70 years of communism. We didn't need advertising. They came from every former Soviet republic, every nation in the old Eastern Bloc. We had people come from Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. They gathered to pray. They gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And every one of the major speakers essentially preached the same thing. They had not met together. They didn't hang out in the green room. We didn't do the kind of cool stuff we do now. Yeah, I, I, I love modern America because we created civilization. And we do cool things like we message. That's like deciding what you want to say and saying it. But we, we message. And we, liaise, we, don't, we, we liaison, or if we're really cool, we liaise. And we didn't do any of that. All we did was come together and pray. And we found in service after service, the Spirit of the Lord was saying the same thing. The last service, Bill Wilson from Metro Ministries in New York was our speaker. Now, Bill Wilson makes folks from East Baltimore look like diplomats. You remember the Earl of Baltimore, who kind of encapsulates the spirit of our city, belligerence and defiance? By the way, Pastor, you talked about these folks taking this thing down in a day. I never doubt for a minute that East Baltimoreans can do what they set their mind to do because a city whose most famous citizen was a little short guy who was overweight and belligerent and kicked dirt on empires, he's our patron saint. So at core, we're kind of defiant and belligerent people. Tell us we can't do it, and that's exactly the motivation that we need to get it done. So Bill Wilson is worse than that. And he stands up, and in his raspy voice at the end of the service, he's speaking to thousands of, of, of leaders, and he said, Tonight, I want you to stand up and come forward if you're ready to die. I thought, now there's a cheery thought. That's kind of your basic seeker-sensitive thing, right? He said, if you ain't ready to die, turn around and walk yourself out the door. We don't need you. But something's getting ready to happen in this country, and if you ain't ready to die, you ain't ready to live. And suddenly, 5,000 people started running to the front. Some of them fell to their knees. Some prostrated themselves. But no one ran out the door. They all ran to the altar. Six weeks later, that, that election was held. The old guys did what the old guys always do, right? They tried to steal it. They were the guys working for the Russians. The Russians would bring the money in in briefcases and even in paper sacks. 
million dollars in, in, in hundred dollar bills in those bags. I've seen them. Don't ask me how. And there was a time that ICCL got really blessed, but we won't talk about that. But they, they were stealing the election. And the most corrupt, violent character who had been imprisoned twice for rape was declared to be the president. Normally in that part of the world, the Slavic people would just take it on the chin and go back to work the next day. The next morning, there were 10,000 people on the independent square worshiping and praying. The word started getting back to the churches and getting back to the pastors. By Sunday, there were 100,000 there. Three weeks later, there were a million. They stopped the city. They stopped the city. All the arterial roads toward that center were blocked with people with their hands raised and singing to worship to God. What they didn't know is that a Russian armored brigade had been sent from Russia to Kiev. It was ready to sweep the streets of the people. What they didn't know is a retired lieutenant general who had been in charge of the Russian space program had gotten saved and full of the Holy Ghost. So he went to his pastor and he said, Pastor, we better pray. This is what they're going to do in 48 hours. So by fax machines and phones, they started praying, calling every pastor in the nation to mobilize the people of God. The president's chief of staff, who I know very well and is one of the sources of the story, told me he went to the president and said, you cannot be a man of blood. You need to let them have a clean and open and honest election. And the man who loved the church, who loved the West, who wanted to see freedom, was then elected. It all happened in a prophetic word to particular people at a particular place at a particular time. Here's what I want you to understand. The Lord says, I am the Lord. I change not. Jesus Christ the same. Everybody say, the same. The same. same. Yesterday, today, and forever. If God had a word for these seven little churches hanging on by the skin of their teeth 2,000 years ago, and if he had a word for his saints at Ukraine, and if he's had a word for his saints all around the world throughout history, does he not have a word for us this morning in this place? Well, the second thing I want to Note is that God is a God of place. Each one of the messages in this book is directed to people in a place, to a particular geographical location, which tells me place is important. Sometimes we doubt that, especially if you live in a place secular society doesn't think is very important. In America, three cities dominate the landscape, New York, Washington, and L.A. And the people in New York especially in the media, refer to the rest of the country as the flyover zone. And if you live in Baltimore, you really do know that folks in New York don't think you're very important. But you know what? It doesn't matter. None of these churches were at a marquee location. God didn't direct these words to the power brokers of Rome or Athens. 
See, in the mind of God, there are no little people. There are no little places. There are no insignificant people. There are no insignificant places in the mind of God at that particular moment in human history. The most strategic locations in the world were those seven little cities where those people desperately needed to hear a word from the living God. Well, third and finally, God's word was a quickened word, which is an old King James way of saying it has life in it. The words of this book are not just words on a page. Jesus said, everybody say Jesus said. How many of you know that if Jesus said it, it's true? I was a little bit weak. Let's try that again. How many of you know if Jesus said it, it's true? It's true everywhere, all the time, and for everybody. So I want you to say it with me. Jesus said. Jesus said, my words are spirit. That is, they are the very breath of God. My words are the very words that God spoke and took a lump of clay and it became a man. My words are the very words that bring strength to the legs of a cripple, sight to the eyes of the blind, hearing to the ears of the deaf. My words are spirit and their life. The writer of Hebrews said the word of God is quick. And living like a two-edged sword, dividing between the bone and the marrow, the sword and the spirit. These words bring life. They energize us. They inspire us. They comfort us. They challenge us. They fill us with hope. And that means that the, when you listen to these words, good things happen. Listen to the words of the angel in Revelation 1-3. He said, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Now there's also a flip side to this one. If good things happen when we listen and take it to heart, good things don't happen if we don't listen. The key here is to listen and to take it to heart, to grab hold of that word and say, Lord, I thank you for this word. Thy word have I hid my heart that I may not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Lord, I am going to take this word to to heart. I'm going to think on the basis of this word. I'm going to act on the basis of this word. I do not care what I see. I do not care what I hear. I do not care what I, what I feel. I only care about what God has spoken. You say, well, this is kind of interesting and at moments even entertaining, but what difference does it make? What does it mean to me this morning in the middle of this pandemic? Well, I would suggest to you that if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and if Jesus had specific words to the churches of Revelation, then God has a word for this place. Got really quiet. I said, God has a word for this place. For this people. See, it means you're not on your own. 
you're not on your own as a church or as a person. Now, it feels that way sometimes. You know, if you have a health crisis and your doctor pronounces the dreaded C word, sometimes you feel like you have been abandoned by God and by your friends. Sometimes if your kids have moved far away and they're busy living their own lives, get a little lonely sometimes. And maybe I'm the only one who felt this. But this will come as a great shock to you. I am an extrovert. I love people. I get my energy by being with people. And so when the pandemic hit, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, this is pretty good. A couple of days, a couple of weeks, I'm not in the office. But at a certain point in time, I got real excited at the very thought of the mailman coming to the mailbox. <laughs> I just want to say hi. I hope y'all doing well. I mean, dogs barking, anything. I don't know if I'm the only one here who struggled about the 1st of April. You know, God made us social beings. So you get cut off from other people, and your brain starts doing really weird stuff. But this word means we're not on our own. It means we can take heart. It means it doesn't matter what the corona does. It doesn't matter what Iran does, North Korea, Russia, or China. It only matters what Jesus does. Men may have a say, but Jesus got the final vote. Go ahead and give the Lord some praise. And a day will come when all of the pretenders will be disposed of. Now, when I was a kid, I talked about the sermons on the second coming. And a very good profession for evangelists in the 1950s and 60s was being prophetic teachers. And they'd come to to your church normally in about October, when you were getting the big harvest moons, which you kind of make kids think that Jesus had come and they had gotten left. And they would roll out these 40-foot charts across the front of the church that would start with the beginning of human history and work you all the way through to the great white throne judgment. And it was really cool. I mean, they had the whole deal figured out. And some of them even knew who the Antichrist was. Now, I, you know, I remember when I was a young pastor, a lot of folks thought it was Henry Kissinger. I really like Henry Kissinger as an Antichrist. He's a great Antichrist. The German accent the Harvard education, he's worked his whole life in Manhattan. And, you know, he's not dead. He's like 130 years old. He's about as short as Yoda in the Star Wars movies. (laughs) So I'm still holding out for Henry. Some people like Saddam Hussein. I always thought the knot was a little loose. We had an evangelist in the Assemblies of God who who was Hitler's second cousin, which doesn't really help you a lot. But he, he did a book called Mussolini, the Antichrist. And I got to know him when he was in his later years. And I, I was just a smart-mouthed kid and said a lot of really stupid stuff. And I asked him, I said, whatever happened to that book of yours, Mussolini, the Antichrist? He said, well, they shot him about 2,500 copies too soon. So we would expend all of this energy and all of this time trying to sort out who was the Antichrist. 
But it hit me one day when I was reading the book of Revelation that he's a bit player in Revelation. He doesn't even show up till chapter 12, and then he ends up in an incinerator. The Antichrist, the dragon, the false prophet all get tossed in a dumpster. They are not the lead players in the story. Jesus is. You see, you haven't quite told me what that specific word is for Eastern yet. Yeah, that ain't my job. It's not for me to say. God has put a man, God has set a man in this house and in this city. And in the years that I have gotten to know Pastor Ed Michael, here's what I've learned. He knows the voice of God. He knows the heart of God. But after walking with him and the leadership for a number of years, I think I can see a couple trend lines. If you think this is really good, this is from the Lord. If you don't like it, I won't be back for a while. (laughs) But let me tell you the first thing that really hits me. God loves Dundalk. That might come as a revelation to you if you're from Towson. But growing up in Essex and Dundalk and Highland Town, I never really did care what those folks thought. And I ain't starting now, baby. But Dundalk's a good place, and God has a plan and a purpose for this community. And it's been one of the great privileges of my life. I got to see the opening chapter as a little eight-year-old kid coming to a youth rally in the old building on North Point Boulevard when Brother and Sister Doolabom were here as pastors, and she introduced herself to me. One of the most loving, kind, genuine Christians I ever met in my entire life. And I thought I was in the presence of Jesus when I met her. And I've watched some of the kind of folks who get saved in this place. Let's chat about that for just a moment. You attract some really interesting people here. <laughs> like my friend Bill Parks, who got saved a couple nights before I did at Potomac Park Camp, who almost got thrown out of camp for threatening to kill a kid. I thought he should have killed the kid. But the night I got saved, guess who was praying with me? Billy Parks, who was really kind of a prophetic symbol of what this place was about. Because God says, I want the folks nobody else wants. I need a place where those folks are welcomed and loved and discipled to health. And I think about all of the thousands of people who have come through here and gotten saved and healed and delivered and sent into ministry. And I think about all the things that you have done as a congregation. And I say to myself, Dundalk is a good place. Part of that is it's kind of a stubborn place. You probably never thought of this as a spiritual gift. But as I was coming up North Point Boulevard this morning... And I drove past the place where the Baltimore militia dug in against the best troops the world had ever seen, who thought 
Baltimore was going to be a walkover. They didn't know what part of town they were in. <laughs> and so this ragtag militia made up of people from here in the city sent the Brits packing. I think there's something about that. I mean, that spirit is just in this place. But see, the strength of that is we're not going to put up with devils and demons either. My second point is God is renewing the church. I think the most casual reading of Pastor Ed's ministry here says that. The wonderful foundation that the Raduanas laid here and the faithfulness and the godliness. Can you imagine? You guys in 60 years have never had a pastor embarrass you. You were never a punchline at the local bar. Wonderful, godly leadership. But that was yesterday. And so God is always building bridges to the future. And part of God's bridge to the future was bringing Pastor Ed to this church and his contagious joy. I don't know exactly how people get joy, but there is one thing I have figured out about this man. He is a carrier. I think he, I think he has the joy virus. And so I think it's hard to stay depressed around him or to stay discouraged around him. And he has this wonderful outgoing love. And let me tell you what, the renewal of the church is not buying new chairs or buying new carpet. It's a renewal of love. It's a renewal of grace. It is a renewal of passion for Jesus. And that's how God is renewing his church. Because when that happens, people can't help but be drawn to that light. And I've been with him in this city. He's, I've watched God open doors for him that no one could have opened. I've watched the favor that he has with political leaders and business leaders and educational leaders. People just like him. They might disagree with him, but they like him. Well, there's one other thing I can hear the Lord saying about this church, and that is that God cares about broken people. The church of the 21st century is not the my dog is bigger than your dog Christian center. The church that lives for itself, that's all about itself, that ties to itself, that church is deader than Adam's house cat and deserves to be. This church embodies and personifies the gospel. Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you religion. He said, I'll give you rest. Renewal, restoration. I'll give you rest. Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the kind of people who are really his people at the end of the age. And he said, the, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world because I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will say, let's hit the pause button here. We're confused. Lord, when do we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did 
did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, verily, verily, which is a Jewish idiom for saying, yo, listen up. This is the important part. This is the punchline. He says, yo, whatever you did for the least of these, the throwaways, the ones nobody cares about, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers and my sisters, you did for me. Bottom line about this place, you care about the folks nobody cares about. Whether they came in this door or not whether they were in Nicaragua, Ukraine, Kenya, the islands of the sea, the inner cities of America, you have had a spectacular heart for lost, disoriented, broken people. I've watched that impact in, in Kenya. I've seen it in Ukraine. Five years ago, when the Russians invaded Ukraine, you were one of the first two churches to fill a container. Winter was coming. We needed coats because they had left their homes wearing shorts and flip-flops. And winter was coming in that part of the world. Some, I had some churches, and God love them, I love them. But I had some churches that created committees and it took them a year to fill a container. You guys filled one in a couple of weeks, and Pastor Ed called me, and I, he said, well, we loaded it. I said, how long did it take? He said, an hour and a half. I said, those are my guys. <laughs> or I think about the impact you've had in a garbage dump in Nakuru, Kenya. When we started working that garbage dump, there were no believers. And today, there are no unbelievers. We have a church in one of the most desperately dark places in Africa. We had 80 kids who had never seen the inside of the school, never had a pair of shoes. Partly because of this church, we put those kids in school. And would you believe that two of those little girls who had never been in the inside of a school were given full scholarships to a really nice Christian school, a boarding school, where they got three meals every day and lived in beautiful rooms. And at the end of the first year, when all the kids tested in that city, 100,000 kids, guess who numbers one and two were in the testing? Two little kids that a lot of people thought were trash. Two little kids that were throwaway kids. But see, God has no throwaway children. And that's what this place is about. That's what you get. That is in your soul. That is in your DNA. That is in your bones. We've done the same with our street girls. Oh, in cities around the world since COVID, mayors have shut down the red light districts for obvious reasons, right? They become super spreader. Uh, centers and our ministry several that we work with have been contacted by mayors New Delhi Bombay Madras Nairobi Nakuru they said the girls are starving because they don't make any money we will work with you 
if you will feed all of the street girls in our city, if you'll teach them new skills. We have prayed and worked for over 20 years on this issue of human trafficking. I've seen these girls set free 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 at a time in one of our crusades. Pastor has been in those when we would take the girls to dinner at midnight in a restaurant. We've seen incredible outreach. I mean, we saw 4,000 of them saved in the last 10 years. But you know that this terrible cancer of human trafficking is at the center of almost every culture in the world. And I've often prayed and asked myself, God, what would it take to get rid of it? Well, COVID has made a hit a pause button. And you gave an offering a few minutes ago, and you didn't even know what you're giving to. But now we have a chance because they want us in the red light districts. The police want us. The mayors want us. We have wide open doors around the world. And this church through your prayers, through your giving, through what you do with your own hands and your own feet. You have helped make it happen. And God loves that. As you have done to the least of these. And that brings me to my last point. And I'm going to say this as theologically and as properly as I'm capable of. You ain't seen nothing yet. The past is prelude. It's a platform. God has brought you to this place for such a time as this. When the Germans were trying to bomb London into submission, Churchill stood before Parliament and he spoke about the English people. And he didn't talk about the generals. He wasn't talking about their officers. He was talking about the English people, and he said, this is their finest hour. Pastor Ed, I believe with all my heart that when the history of this church is written, the history of our city is written, people are going to say that it was during this time that this was their finest hour. You say, how could you believe such a thing? Because God said it first. He spoke to the prophet Isaiah when the country was just coming apart at the seams. And to a discouraged prophet, he said, I has not seen. Neither has ear heard. Neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared. That means he scheduled it. It's in his strategic plan. It's calendarized. He's prepared for those that love him. All we have to do is get in the right place. is at the altar and offer ourselves to him again and say, Jesus, use me. And, oh, Lord, don't refuse me. Surely there's a work that I can do. And even though it's humble, Lord, help my will to crumble. Though the cost be great, I'll work for you. Stand with me.
Father, your presence has settled in over this place in such a heavy way, such a profound way. It's absolutely crystal clear what you would have of us in this moment. Whether we are at the beginning of our lives or near the end, whether we are in spring or summer or fall or winter, you would say of all of us, let me use you. Let me use you. Lord, we stand in your presence right now and we say, Jesus, I give you my hands. I give you my feet. I give you my mouth. I give you my heart. I give you my family. I give you my career. I give you my home. Lord, I give myself to you. Take me, oh God, and use me in this hour. May I be broken bread that you distribute to the hungry, to the broken, to the lost. Lord, would you take what I have and use it for the healing of the nations. Some of you were singing that chorus with me a moment ago, but I want you to lift your hands. If you remember it, I want you to sing it with me. Jesus, use me. And, oh, Lord, don't refuse me. For surely there's a work that I can do. And even though it's humble, Lord, help my will to crumble. Though the cost be great, I'll work for you. I just feel like the Lord has some of you to come forward this morning and just, just say to God, God, I want to be used of you. God, I want, I want my life to count. God, I want to be. Come on, if you're just feeling that tug right now, you may be involved in ministry even here at Eastern, and you're just saying, God, I, I just want to surrender again, God, to your usefulness. Come on, I want you to just come right now in this moment. Just, just moments like these are just so important. If God's stirring your heart, I want you to come. You're just, you're just saying, God, God, if there's something you can do through my life. God, I don't want to miss this hour, Father. Who am I? But God, you're mighty. God, you're just looking for some willing vessels to say, God, work through me, God. Be a vessel, God, to touch other people's lives. Give you praise today, Jesus. Lord, we're so grateful for what you've done in our lives, God. How can we not say, God, Use me. Jesus, use me. We bless you, Lord, in this place. And oh.